The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Finish up the mini-series we've been doing on worship, what it means to worship God acceptably. And we are looking at two final elements today, and that is the benediction or the blessing and our offerings. Before we get into the sermon, let's ask God to bless our time with the preaching of the word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you once again to pour forth your spirit so that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, that we would receive your word, that we would put all distractions and offenses out of the way and know that you right now are speaking to us, your people, through your word, providentially in this place. And so I ask, Father, for you to pour out your spirit. Even as we learned in Sunday school this morning, apart from your spirit, we really can do nothing, the spirit of Christ. So attend the preaching of your word with the power of your spirit for the sake of Christ and his church. For the sake of his name, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't think anyone would disagree with this statement, that we like to be blessed. I don't think anyone would say, I like to be cursed. You'd say, we like to be blessed. We like to be blessed in many ways. Got a brand new truck, or I got that big bowl that I've always been wanting to get, or I went on that trip I've always wanted to take, or even in a thoughtful gift from a spouse, even in the small things such as an encouraging note, or a, a, a smiling face, or whatever the case may be, a pleasant conversation on a beautiful evening. We enjoy being blessed. And this is also true in the worship service. We are blessed throughout the whole worship service. Oftentimes in our day, we focus specifically on the music and the singing to, to the point where we say, well, I don't know that I can be blessed unless that is in order. But really, the whole worship service is God pouring forth His blessing on us, giving his blessings upon us. And I think that these two elements we're looking at today, we tend to overlook as that which is a blessing for us. And so we're going to look at two ways in which we are blessed in the worship service. First is the, the benediction, and the second is in our offerings. So first, the benediction. And to do this, I want you to turn over to Leviticus chapter 9. Uh, we covered this when we were in Leviticus, so some of this is going to be familiar. Leviticus chapter 9, Leviticus being the third book in the Bible, the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 9. And here in Leviticus, we have the first official worship service after the newly constructed tabernacle. The tabernacle was built for this purpose, to have worship with God. And we see the first sacrifice offered by the newly ordained priest. And then we read, after this first sacrifice is offered, 
verse 22, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. So after Aaron had offered up the sacrifices, we see him lift up his hands toward the people and bless them. Now the question is, what is this? Lifting up your hands to bless them. How is he blessing them by just lifting up his hands towards them? How is that a blessing? Well, we call this the benediction or blessing. I see those two as synonymous. Well, this is communicated through the appointed minister raising his hands towards the people. And this represents laying hands on people to convey this blessing from God because the minister only has two hands and there's more than two people in this congregation. This is how he confers it to all people. He lifts up both his hands directed towards the people. And this is what Aaron is doing in light of the sacrifice that he had just offered. Because that sacrifice is accepted by God, the people are blessed. He doesn't first check to see how you're doing in your Christian walk. He doesn't first check to see how well you are doing in obeying God. He doesn't say, okay, this, you people over here, you've been really good. You get on this side, and then you people who haven't done as well, you get over here on this side. And I'm only going to bless you over here because you have been doing so well once your obedience has been examined. Rather, everyone gets blessed based on that one sacrifice offered up for them. The acceptance, the blessing is based upon that sacrifice, the acceptability of the sacrifice. Now we also see Christ do this after he offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice and before he ascended into heaven and he was after he had been raised. Luke 24:50 records for us Jesus lifting up his hands and blessing his people before ascending into heaven, just like the Levitical high priest lifted up his hands to bless the people upon the sacrifice being offered. So Jesus does the same after that sacrifice he offered had been accepted by the Father as evidenced by him being raised from the dead. Now this, what is this blessing? Well, this blessing is more than well-wishing or giving us warm fuzzies. This benediction is God blessing His people with His name. Let me continue to explain that. We see in number 6, and this is going to be familiar to you, so I'm not going to have you turn there, the high priestly blessing where he says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So this is the blessing being conveyed in the benediction. This is what Aaron was to do. He was to lift up his hands and bless the people in this manner. 
This blessing is the blessing of God's presence. Stated figuratively as God making His face to shine upon His people. Now, it should go without saying, God doesn't have a literal face. He doesn't have a body like men. Rather, this is referring to the sense of God's favorable presence with us. This is God confirming and assuring us of His favor. Stated figuratively as His face shining upon us. The, the, the warmth of God's love, just as we sit out in the sun and we feel the warmth of the sun. So in the benediction, God is saying, feel the warmth of my love towards you. The warmth of my favor towards you, people of God, based on that sacrifice that I have accepted for your sins. It's knowing that He is with us in a favorable way. That He loves us and has accepted us. Before, His presence was a terror. His face would be against us, the Scripture says elsewhere, apart from that sacrifice. But now, His face shines upon us. He has accepted us received and welcomed us because of the sacrifice of Christ. And this brings about peace, a happy countenance. Knowing that God favors you, knowing the God of the universe, in whose hands it's a dreadful thing to fall, no longer stands opposed to you. You're no longer under His wrath, no longer under His judgment. But He's happy with you. He smiles upon you. He warmly accepts you because of the sacrifice. Knowing that, that brings a happy countenance upon us. And assurance of this is the appointed minister raising his hands and blessing the people with this. This is why we still do this at the end of each service. Through God's appointed ministers, appointed by the people of God, the blessing is conveyed to the people of God. It's not that the minister functions as a priest who just got done offering up a sacrifice for the people. Rather, this is based on the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, our great high priest. If a blessing could be declared to the people of God, based upon an animal sacrifice, then how much more the people of God based upon Christ once and for all perfect sacrifice. And so we rightly are to receive this blessing because of this sacrifice. Because Christ has forever put away our sin. His face forever shines upon us. And this is why it's not based week after week upon, well, how well did you obey this week? But rather, we hear the same blessing every week. The Lord is with you. Go in peace knowing that He is with you. And this is God putting His name upon us. As number 6 says, after God tells Aaron to declare this blessing, God says, so you shall put my name upon them. What does that mean? 
does that mean there's a stamp that gets put on her forehead with the letters G-O-D or something on it? Well, obviously not. Rather, God putting His name upon us, to use our vernacular, is God giving us our identity. God reminding us who we are as His blood-bought people. He is saying, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased because of the sacrifice of my Son. You are no longer a condemned alien and stranger, but a justified, adopted child of mine. You are part of my family. Just as a wife receives the surname of her husband, or an adopted child receives the surname of the family, so also God is placing His name upon us His people. He is conveying our identity as His forgiven, adopted, dearly loved children. And we have His smile upon us. Because we are His children, His face is not against us. His face shines brightly upon us. And how practical is this? As God's people, we, we go out into a hostile world. The world doesn't know Christ, and therefore the world doesn't know us. This world is not our home. This world hates and rejects Christ. But we who belong to God are assured of His acceptance and blessing of who we are, not as those who are of the world, but those who are His while in this world. And so we do not need to try to find acceptance in an identity, in our works, in a group, in peers, finding our value, finding worth, trying to feel worthy in anything other than God's free love towards us. You know, maybe some of you have been sinned against even egregiously sinned against, making you feel filthy in a dark place, feeling afraid. Well, what helps is to receive your true name, your identity, God's name, as a beloved, clean child, and a God who is for you. And when we sense the warmth of His shining face upon us and believe that this is our true identity, that God is for us, who can be against us? We don't need to have everything go our way to know that God is with us. If only this would work out this way. If only I would not be under this trial. If only I can be assured that this thing won't happen. Then... God is with me. No, God is with us even in the valley of the shadow of death. God is with us even when we walk through those types of valleys. This even has ramifications in our marriages. The wife wants to be loved, pursued, known, and understood by her husband. 
And husbands are not really known for doing that very well. And so she feels rejected when he does not do this. Or even when he sins against her. To make her feel rejected. And while this is a good and godly desire to want to be loved by one's spouse, yet this becomes an idolatrous desire after the fall. God declared this in Genesis 3 when He said to the woman, your desire will be for your husband. And since this is spoken in the context of the curse, this goes from a normal, legitimate desire to an idolatrous desire. She will place her hope in Him for acceptance, belonging, and finding her value and identity in His love towards her. But the husband, it says, will rule over her. He'll treat her harshly, be absent, and so many other sins pertaining to this. And he can also have an idolatrous desire for respect to cover up his own insecurities. A lot of times when men are insecure, they demand to be respected. They demand to not be criticized. They demand to be affirmed. And if they are not shown it, they will either lash out or become withdrawn to cover themselves. And in reality, this deals with all our insecurities. Are you criticizing me? Are you suggesting that I am lacking? Why are you not affirming me, welcoming me as one of your own? Are you saying that I no longer belong with you? But our happiness and well-being, what defines us, is not whether or not people accept us. Is it a blessing to be accepted? Of course it is. But why put our hope in fickle, sinful men? They are going to fail us at some point. There is a better and more sure foundation than that. And it's God whose love is unchanging. Indeed, cannot change. And how do you know that God loves you? And how do you know that God has accepted you? And how do you know that His face shines upon you and, smile, and that he, you have His smile as His beloved child? Of course, it's based on the sacrifice of Christ. But the, at the end of the service, when the minister raises his hands, it's not just a formality to end the service. It is God smiling upon you and making His face shine upon you. You, my child, are loved. You have my acceptance. I am pleased and happy with you in Christ. And this gives us great encouragement to live for Christ, knowing that we are loved and accepted by Him. The second blessing pertains to our offerings. And I call this a blessing because of what our Lord Jesus said, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know, we think the more we have, the more we get for ourselves, 
the more blessed we are. But do we truly believe Jesus? Do you really trust His Word when He says that it is more blessed to give than to receive? What you do with your money reveals that. And in our offerings, we are giving to the Lord for the advancement of His kingdom. If there's ever a time that it is blessed to give, it's when we're giving to the Lord. And it is part of worship. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16 to, to see this. First Corinthians 16 verses 1 through 2. First Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. The Apostle Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul's giving a command here as an apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is a commandment that comes from the Lord, with the Lord's authority. And this command is not particular to the Corinthians. So it's not, well, this is just for the Corinthian church in this day, because he says, as I directed all the churches, it's plural. It's in the region of Galatia. So this is a common command for the churches. And that command is for each person to give, to, to put something aside according to how God has prospered him for every first day of the week. And notice this is for each person. Verse 2 says, each of you is to do this. So not just some of you, not just you know you who have extra, but each of you are to do this. And notice also that there is a day specified here. It says the first day of every week. So every first day of the week. Now, why does that matter? The Holy Spirit doesn't make mistakes and say, oh, you know what? I, didn't, I wasn't really thinking about that. I probably should change that. No, everything is perfect and well thought out. God is infinite in wisdom and knowledge. So why does he say that? Why does he choose to include that in his word, that it must be on the first day of the week? Why does that matter? Why not just say, make sure to pay your dues, make sure you give, you know, the day doesn't matter. He doesn't say that. Well, as you may be well aware of by now, the first day of the week is the day of worship. It's the day that Christians gather together. We see that in Acts 20, verse 7. It's the day of worship. It's the Lord's Day. And what the Holy Spirit is doing here is He's tying our giving to worship, to worshiping God. It is an act of worship. It is an element of public worship. Giving is not just to pay dues to meet the budget. 
I think there's way too much talk about budget in churches today. As if that's the goal, where we have to meet our budget. Well, let me give you a hypothetical situation. Let's say we met our budget by over a million dollars. That is a hypothetical, truly hypothetical situation. Let's say our budget was $350,000 and we have $1.5 million sitting in the bank right now. Should you continue to give? And the answer is yes. And the reason for that is because our giving is not about meeting a budget, but it is an act of worship in giving to the Lord. We sometimes forget that it is worship to give. Now the way it's put elsewhere in Scripture is that it's actually robbing God not to give. But turn over to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. If you find Matthew, you can just continue to turn and you'll find Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3.8 says, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? Now, of course, this would be shocking, so God anticipates their question and goes on to say in verse 8, But you say, How have we robbed you? God answers by saying, In your tithes and contributions. Now, a a tithe means uh, literally a tenth. They were to give a tenth of what they had received, and then their contributions or offerings were referred to the other sacrifices they were required to make during that time. Uh, grain and food, it brings some of the produce, bring an animal. In, in reality, this would have been more than 10% uh, of all that they make. Uh, some have actually added this up, and it would be something like 27% of everything that they had. We're going to talk in a moment about whether or not tithe continues in the New Testament. Uh, that there is a difference with the New Testament. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the question is, how could someone truly rob God if he already owns everything, and you can never forcibly take anything from him. Well, this is spoken in a, in a manner of us men, in, in a human analogy. We speak of robbing God of his glory when we don't praise him the way we ought to. It's considered robbing God of His glory, or, or seeking glory for ourselves when we should be giving it to God. It's not that God becomes less glorious in and of Himself. That God cannot change. You, you can't diminish God. God's not dependent upon creatures to be who He is. Rather, this is referring to we are not doing what is required out of us. We are sinning against God. And it's spoken in a manner of robbing him, not giving to him what is truly owed to him. And this is the biblical way to think about not giving. It's not opting out of an optional suggestion from God. Rather, it is robbing God and disobeying His command. 
And God says in verse 9 that this comes with a curse. He says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, during the Old Covenant, this would come with Old Covenant curses. Uh, their, they would lack food. Uh, their harvest would be taken from them. There would be natural disasters that would happen. And there would be lack of protection from God on these things. Now, in the New Testament, it doesn't carry over as a curse. It's not in the context of a curse. But it's in the context of discipline. Two times in the New Testament where it says, you reap what you sow, are both referring to giving. 2 Corinthians 9.6, in the context of giving, says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And so this principle is stated right here in the New Testament. Uh, this is exactly in line with what's stated in the Old Testament in Proverbs 11.24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Now the other place in the New Testament that talks about reaping what you sow is found in Galatians 6.6. 6. So if you keep a figure in Malachi, turn over to Galatians 6.6. 6. You'll see that there. comes after the letters to the Corinthians. After 2 Corinthians, find Galatians. Galatians 6.6. 6. It says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So this is better translated as, let the one who is taught the word share all goods uh, with the one who teaches, which is talking uh, about support, uh, paying ministers, pastors, missionaries even. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So that, that's the immediate context there, what 6.6 6 is saying. And that's going to help explain what, says, what this says here in verses 7-8, through 8, where he goes on to say, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but to the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So this is the same context as what was stated in 2 Corinthians 9.6 of giving. And this flows out of Galatians 5, which talks about the deeds of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. Well, you can add your money to this list. In fact, that should be at the top. Because what you do with your money is one of the clearest indicators of our hearts. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's in the context of you can't serve both God and money. And if you spend your money on earthly possessions, luxury and fun, but not on giving to the Lord as an act of worship, for uh, the support of the ministry of the Word, for missionaries, for the collection of needy saints, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 16. 
then this reveals how much you value this world over Christ's kingdom. You are not seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. Paul says, don't be deceived about sowing to the flesh. This is a matter of where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. This is a matter of robbing God. But there's also a promise of blessing that comes with faithfulness. Turning back over to Malachi, Malachi 3.10, it says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So God commands His people to to bring the full tithe into His storehouse. To bring their offerings to God's house. And notice, God says, my house. There's there's so many different things that we can support at parachurch organizations that we are free to, but it must never replace worshiping and bringing it to God's house. Now the question is, whether or not we are to tithe, that is, give a literal 10%. And the New Testament does not command this. That was actually part of the Old Covenant. Rather, it commands for us to each give as we have determined in our heart. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So again, the command is each one must give. How much? As he's determined in his heart, but do so cheerfully, not under compulsion. But also 1 Corinthians 16 says, as God has prospered us. So there does need to be a correspondence to how God has prospered us. could be 10%. It could be less than that. It could be more than that. However, God does not require a literal 10% in the new covenant. But as 2 Corinthians 9 says, if we sow sparingly, we will also reap sparingly. But if we sow bountifully, we will also reap bountifully. And God says something shocking to his people here. He says, test me in this. Now, is it good to test the Lord? Well, Remember how Satan tried to tempt Jesus? And Jesus says, ah, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so God says something shocking here where he says, test me in this, in this one area. And if you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully is what God is saying. This is in line with the Old Testament in Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And this is what God is saying here in Malachi. Test me. See what's going to happen. But you know what this requires? This requires faith. Because how do I know that God is going to do what He says unless I first give to Him. How do I know He's going to bless me in return, unless I first give? Well, it requires faith. 
Now, you're not going to get strikingly rich. I don't think that's going to happen. But the Lord will provide for you. And He can provide in so many different ways. Such as, I just think of one way for us, that having that expedition. You know, some of you have ridden, have ridden in the expedition. Uh, not everyone. But I got this really nice uh, expedition, Ford Expedition from 1998. I actually think those vehicles are better. Uh, even though it's been in Patrick's shop, you know, who knows how many times. But all, all minor stuff. It works so well. I think even Patrick said, and that thing will go over 300,000 miles. That was given to us as a gift without us asking it. So the, the, just so many different ways. It's not a fat bank account. It can be so many different ways that the Lord provides, even in not having that breaking down, having a reliable vehicle. The, the Lord really does meet our needs and take care, take care of us in so many different ways. We trust Him as we give to Him. And I say all of this, by the way, uh, I don't know who gives what. Uh, only the, the, the deacons and uh, Pastor Tim uh, knows. I don't know who gives. Also, we're not in a budget crisis. Say this even if we had a million dollars in the bank. Because this is about worshiping the Lord. It's about where our heart is. It's about each one of us obeying God's commandment. Every single one of us must keep His commandment to give our offerings to Him as an act of worship, love for His name, and love for His gospel, trusting that He will keep His promises. But the greatest motivation for giving to God is out of thankfulness to Him who gave us His Son. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 in the context of giving, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just take a moment to ask you, do you know this? Do you know this grace? Do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? That though He was rich, yet for your sake, your sake, He became poor, so that through His poverty, you might become rich. That our Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God, eternal God, assumed humanity. Not only did He become poor, born in a manger, a man of no repute, and also a man of sorrows, but He suffered the curse and wrath of God in your place. That the greatest sacrifice that was ever made ever in the history of creation was made for you, believer. Christ endured hell so that you would have heaven as a free gift. How can we not give a little to our Lord that He has first given to us? So as you know the blessing of the Lord, that He has made His face to shine upon you, may you also know the blessing that comes with giving, especially to the Lord, over that of receiving. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that You would help us to be faithful worshipers as we have considered this whole series.
Help us, Father, as we put these things into practice and as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, now we turn to the Lord's table. And the Lord's table is the Lord welcoming us to his table as we uh, feast on Christ as our soul. Feast on Christ crucified, nourished on these symbols. They don't uh, become uh, transubstantiated. They don't become uh, the, the, the bread remains the bread. The cup remains the cup. They, the elements do not change, but what they symbolize becomes or is a powerful sign to the one who has faith, who understands what these things are. And so in that sense, it's feeding on Christ because the bread represents a body violently broken for you and given for you. The cup represents blood poured out for you. The judgment uh, of that, that we deserve, Christ drank so that we would be eternally blessed and have eternal joy and know that He will drink it anew with us in the age to come. That that is our eternal hope. So this is for you if you are trusting in Christ. If you are not trusting in Christ, if you have not turned from your sin and looked to Him, do not eat and do not drink, for you will eat and drink judgment on yourself. Now last week I mentioned that uh, we are going to introduce wine into the supper. Uh, we need to work out some logistics with that, and so we plan on doing that the first Lord's Day in October. So until then, it's grape juice, and the cups are stacked. You have uh, the, the, the grape juice on top of another cup that contains uh, a piece of bread, so grab a stack. Return to your seat and wait until everyone has been served and we will eat and drink together. There's also some in the back of the back couple of rows, so if you'd please start coming up at this time.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would bless these simple signs and symbols so that we may truly feast upon Christ. That is, give us the faith to understand what the Lord has done for us is symbolized in this supper so that we may be spiritually nourished, strengthened, and encouraged. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread when He had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. Amen. Let's stand again and sing. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.